Hello and welcome to the first episode of the podcast. My name is Justin Sizemore. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Mays Alkawaz and discuss her experiences living in Iraq during the war, immigrating to the U.S., becoming a physician, and working in the ICU. We also discuss her thoughts on current events in the United States. Before I get started, I want to give a special thanks to my biggest supporter, Topaz Navarro, and the nonprofit organization Workplay Obsession All In Foundation. The mission of this organization is to build a community to support those that are working to heal the invisible wounds of trauma. Check them out at the website, workplayobsession.com. All right, and here we go. So, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, yeah. I'm Mace Alkawaz. Um, I am a 30-year-old woman. Um, I'm originally from Iraq. I am now a neurocritical care fellow at Johns Hopkins University. Um, that's pretty much it. And I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I live in Maryland. What does it mean to be a fellow? Most people who don't work in medicine, when I started, I didn't know what that yeah. meant. Um, it's a trainee, but it's a level above a resident, meaning I had already finished medical school, I finished specialty training, and now I'm doing subspecialty training, but I'm not yet a practicing physician on my own. I still need supervision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because you had said you came, you're, you're from Iraq, mm -hmm. and you were in Iraq during the war, mm -hmm. which, you know, for me, we're the same age, I'm 31, uh, the Iraq war was just something I saw on the news at night, yeah. and we heard a very little bit about, and I don't think most people get that perspective of someone who's actually lived there. Yeah. So, what was that like? It started uh, March 2003, or 2003. Yeah, it's wild that you even know the exact date because I can't even remember. Well, like, I looked it up. Okay, no. fine. <laughs> but no, but like thinking back to me, it was just like such a blob of time, like a long period of time, like two or three years that are just like undifferentiated from each other. Because to me, it's, it seemed like everything stopped, right? Like we weren't going to school, we weren't doing the usual things we were doing. So I, I couldn't really remember the start or the end. But um, I probably am very privileged to begin with because I know that my experience is not very similar to everyone else who was in Iraq and people have had it a lot, lot worse. Mm -hmm. um, when the war started, we were there for the first few nights um, because we hadn't expected it. Um, the entire country, I think at least, you know, weren't informed, at least, or weren't told that it's gonna start because, you know, Saddam style. So everyone was just like taken by surprise. Um, the, there are a few moments in time that I remember from it very distinctly. The first night was one of them because um, my little brother was really, really young. Mm -hmm. And when it first started, we lived right next to the Department of Defense, the Iraqi Department of Defense, which was, as you can imagine, one of the first targets. Um, and the, just the sound of the bombing was just incredibly loud. Everything, like windows were shattering, and you could kind of hear um, every rocket in the air come through, and you could, 
you know, you could hear the beginning of it and you kind of didn't know where it ended up. And it was just like probably one of the scariest nights of my life. Um, but thankfully, we did find the first few nights. Um, we were just stuck in the house, really relying on what we had left to like eat and drink. And then we got out of the city. My father and his um, and my uncles owned a farm outside in a city that was relatively unharmed at this point. And so, like my family and all of our extended family, like uncles and aunts and their kids, moved there for the next. I think few months um, and the rest of the war that I experienced was not as intense as that first week at all the rest of it was just like in the beginning it was like oh it's great you're like with a bunch of your friends like in a farm <laughs> playing around you don't have to go to school it was like great and then you kind of felt like something was wrong something was amiss um, how old were you at the time? I was 13 years old. Very young. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, the next thing I knew, or the next thing I saw in that town, because that town, I think, went down pretty peacefully, mm. um, was, you know, American soldiers and tanks coming in. And then, you know, we ended up going back to Baghdad, and life was just completely and utterly different. Everything was so different. How? Um, so there were a lot of like shootings and killings in the beginning and targeting of civilians and no one knew who was targeting the civilians and why they were targeting them. Uh, people were getting kidnapped like for money and then just like random ransoms. People would come to your house and start shooting the entire family and just there was no law or order. There was literally no law and if something happened to you like there's no one to call. Who are you going to call? Yeah. The police? The police have all been disbanded because they were all like working for Saddam. The army? There is no army. And I mean the American army was taking care of their own business. So like really you're on your own. If someone wanted to come in and shoot your entire family, they could. And so it was just like a state of terror. Everything was just scary. There was obviously, you can only leave the house after, I want to say 7 p.m. So, you know, there were no restaurants. Nobody was going out. Nobody was, um, going to school was an entire experience if we got to go to school because someone would start shooting in the middle of the road and your driver would turn right back around and like drop you back home. Like, it was just like, it was like a different world, but you get used to it because that's, right? That's like human nature. You, you're like, this is what I have. Okay, moving on. Wow. Yeah. So how many years were you in Baghdad at that point? Like, when did you leave Baghdad? We left in 2008. Mm -hmm. I left in 2008, I think, maybe a couple of years before. Or yeah, maybe we left in 2006. We left in 2006, sorry. See, I told you the entire, like, it's like a blob of time. Well, you were young. Yeah. I left to finish high school in Egypt, mm -hmm. and I finished two years there, and then I went to um, the pre-med med school program at Cornell Cutter. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I left. Left. Huh? Oh, my left. <coughs> 
Well, do you want me to tell you why I left? <laughs> yeah, why did you leave? Why did you leave Egypt? Well, I left Egypt to go to the pre-med med school program, and at the time my parents immigrated to the United States. So mm -hmm. it was never a place for us to stay. It was more of like we needed to get out mm -hmm. to be safe as we're doing, you know, paperwork to try to immigrate somewhere else. But yeah. Who were you living with in Egypt? My, uh, my parents. Um, oh. My older brother at the time had left also for college, but yeah. My parents, my uncle was there too, for the same reason. But yeah. So then you did pre-med to Cutter. Yep. And then where'd you go? What was next? Um, med school, also Cornell Cutter, but med school in this situation was like the most of the preclinical years were in Cutter, and then the clinical years what were at New York Presbyterian and um, Cornell, New York. And then I did residency at Cornell, and then here I am. Okay. How many years total from pre-med to where you are now in your fellowship? Wow, hold on, six. And then I took one year off for research, so that's seven. And then four years in residency, it's 11. Um, so 12, this is my 13th year. 13th year, mm -hmm. post high school. Mm -hmm. And now you're a rich doctor, right? No. 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 I still have <laughs> two have and a half to, more years. Okay. To be a rich doctor. Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully. <laughs> that's the goal. So your fellowship, that's a two-year program? The next one is a two-year program also, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot of studying. I don't think people realize how long the process is to yeah. become a doctor. Yeah. And then you have to specialize too, right? Yep. So, yeah, I'm doing two subspecialties. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So what would you say, I mean, obviously life here is very different. Yeah. But what was really, did anything shock you or, you know, when you first came over? Yeah. Um, a lot of things shocked me. <laughs> um, so... When I went, I mean, when I went to pre-med and, you know, med school and then I did some high school in Egypt, the high school that I was in was an American high school, so supposedly, like, there was a lot of the American culture stuff that was integrated in it, but it's, it's not at all the same. Um, can I grab your, uh, yeah. just rubbing on that? I know, I, I kept I hearing it. Yeah. Hold on, let me see this. Technical difficulties. What if I do this? Oh, we are privileged to have a professional uh, <laughs> in the room, so. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. There we go. Is that if better? If that's not comfortable, we can figure something out. No, it's fine. As long as. You could put it up under your shirt if you want to. That's usually how we do it. Oh, this? Tuck the cord under the, the shirt. Just put the cord under your shirt, but it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Um, okay, sorry. So you were telling me, you were asking me what was the most different thing about yeah, the culture. Yeah, and you were talking about being in Egypt and, you know, in quote-unquote American culture. High yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Hold on. Let me Yeah. What did you think about uh, culture in the U.S. before you came here? Like, what did you think the U.S. was like before you came yeah. here? So, I mean... I watched a lot of like American shows and read a lot of like American books and the 
biggest thing that drew me here is like you can be whoever you want to be as long as you work hard for it mm -hmm. and there is no limitation to that and that's my understanding of it was like freedom opportunity like diversity you know it's just like kind of the sky is the limit and that was like that was a dream that was the vision that i i mean it, it still is in some ways but that is that is what drew me most to it and that's the biggest ideal i had about it before coming here do you still feel that way now um i do i do um sometimes i feel like that concept is jeopardized a lot which is sad because i think I don't think that ideal was limited to me. I think a lot of people hold that like outside of the United States. That's why people want to come here and like be the best they can be. And I think jeopardizing that concept is, you know, unfortunate because you're taking that away from the country and you're taking that away from like millions of people outside of it who are dreaming about it. So what do you mean by jeopardize? Well, the concept of you can be whoever you want to be without any limitations, I don't, I, sometimes I feel like it wouldn't stand true anymore just based on who you are or where you're coming from, your gender, your color, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things that, you know, this country has worked through so many of these differences to get over them and has successfully gotten over them. But every once in a while, I'll see like the big violation of all the progress mm -hmm. that I think has been made. And so like as a woman, obviously a person of, I consider myself a person of color and brown. And too. so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, some people don't. But anyway, really? yeah, 100%. Oh. Oh, wow. um, that's but strange, but. I'll t yeah, I'll, t I'll tell you a story later. But in any case, so seeing that that can stand against you in certain ways is, is really discouraging and scary. And I hope that that's just in my head. I hope that people are being hyper vigilant about it and that's not true. But that's why it it's scares me sometimes. Does it scare you? Do you feel like we're, we're making backwards, like we're going sometimes, in reverse? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a steady progression into... Right. It's, it's some steps back mm. that are really scary. Again, I, th I hope that I'm being, and everyone else is being hypervigilant about it, and that it's not true, but um, yeah, some of the incidents that I've been seeing over the past few months, and I'm sure the entire country has been seeing, kind of like scare me. Oh. Yeah. It's interesting. It's important. I guess it's important to note that today is uh, election day. Yeah. November third. So. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, maybe tomorrow's the end of the world. We'll see. Civil war uh, may come. <laughs> <laughs> and these words will link. What's that? Luckily, we have a lot of guns. Okay, there's a lot of guns here. Mm -hmm. We're gonna edit <laughs> that part out. All about that. All right. All right. So don't come here. Is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. Uh, so back to when you first came over. Yeah. What was the most interesting or the most shocking thing about the United States? Um, hmm. Um, hmm. 
Sorry, I have to think about that one because there were a lot of shocking things. Um, So just to be completely honest, um, when I first came here, I it's a very cultural thing for us is that all women would cover their heads, Mm -hmm. obviously with a hijab. Um, Not obviously, it's not an obvious thing, but that's that's a very common thing in Iraq. And I was at the time covering my hair, and so I just didn't. And it was. It took me a while to kind of realize that I, that this is something that I wasn't doing for myself. That I was doing for other people. So it wasn't just the shock of the country. It was also the shock of like in a new culture. It was the shock of like discovering myself. So I feel like it all came together at the same time. So it was a. It was a big step for me, uh, figuring out what I really wanted for myself and not something that I was doing for my culture or just because that's what everybody else was doing around me. Um, I had a big culture shock when it came to that and like a lot of like sit downs to kind of think about myself and what I wanted to do. And eventually I, I decided that I wanted to do what I thought was, I thought was right, what I thought was making sense, what mm-hmm. I thought represented who I am. And so I stopped doing that. And that's, I mean, I guess that's one of the first kind of changes or shocks that I had when I came here. Um, What else? One of the other things was figuring out that you had a freedom of religion. And I know that that's, maybe that's not a, or maybe that's not considered a big thing for people here, but for me it was shocker because you couldn't you know you're born with your religion that's it you stay with it you do what it says and end of story and coming here and realizing well no like I can actually like think about what I want and and does my religion make sense to me um and figuring out that people have the freedom to be born with more religion and not following it or maybe Mm -hmm. changing to a different religion was huge um so those were probably the two biggest things for me. Now, did that cause friction with your family? Yeah, big time. But I think it was it was a, a growth experience, not just for me, but for my family too. My family has come a long way from the first time they immigrated here. And um, I'm thankful to have parents who are very, very loving, above all. They're smart, they're stubborn, but they're very loving. So at the end of the day, just you know, making sure their kids are happy and everything is just really what meant the most to them. Um, and they're very understanding, so they were willing to kind of sit down and listen and understand why I was doing certain things and why certain things didn't make sense to me. And to be honest with you, they couldn't really like provide an explanation to me when I asked them about half of the things that we were doing for culture or religion or just because everyone else was doing them. Mm. They couldn't really figure it out themselves. And so that's when I think we all kind of learned something about ourselves. But yeah. Do you ever wear the hijab now? No. Does your mother? Uh, no, she used to, but okay. no, yeah, yeah. So how old were you when you immigrated to the U.S.? Um, so, let's see, two years into med school. 
Man, I'm old. Hold on. <laughs> Two, one, six. So seven, seven years ago was the first time yeah. I was here for you know a prolonged period seven. of time. Yeah. So, how would you describe that process? You know, that's an issue that uh, I guess up for. Yeah. You know, we're choosing today. Yeah. Was it? How would you describe the immigration process? So, I am still on. I'm still on a work visa till mm -hmm. today. Um, Until today. I mean. Like no. November third. No. Well, oh, okay. That's not going to change anytime soon. I don't think. But um, since I've come in on a work visa, and I'm still on a work visa. Immigration for physicians is different than for everyone else. Um, my entire, entire family immigrated here and you know they're now citizens but I immigrated as a physician so as a healthcare worker meaning um, you're put on a certain immigration status and that immigration status is incredibly difficult to change. Mm. For the regular person to immigrate here as a physician? Mm. So if I had done like a political asylum or um, I don't know some other way that people immigrate it would have probably been easier um, but as it stands now a lot of physicians are on this certain type of visa that's called a J1 visa that has a limitation on it that says after your training you have to go back to your home country and train for two years oh, before wow. mm -hmm. is that what you're on that's what I'm on Oh. A lot of people, some people get out of it by, you know, hiring a lawyer and doing a, a whole lawsuit. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to do. Mm -hmm. But it's an incredibly, like, hard, long, expensive, like, process. Even with a marriage. Even with, so I was going to say you're married. You married a U.S. citizen. Doesn't change it. Hmm. Does not change it. The, a, the according to can I, can I say something? Yeah, hey, come on, jump in. <laughs> according to the according to the um, America, the Mises attorney, the American Medical Association lobbied in the 1970s to make it harder for foreign physicians to practice in the United States because they wanted to drive a sort of a protectionist strategy. They wanted to drive up incomes for doctors who are already here. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to limit the supply of doctors and prevent foreign doctors from working here. They could study here, but then they had to go back. That's the concept of the J-1 visa. Okay. So that's why it makes it harder for doctors who are foreign to come here and, and actually work after they study. So they have to jump through a lot more hoops, spend more money, go through you know multiple processes to sort of transition away from that visa. Um, and now there's a shortage of healthcare workers all over the world, so it doesn't really make sense. But uh, that's still the current U.S. policy in immigration, so it's very, very difficult for doctors to immigrate here. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that? Uh, have you voted? Did you vote today? I can't vote. Oh, you can't vote. I can't. Oh. Would that have changed the way I vote? Would that have been a, uh, an issue for you? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's not the biggest issue. I hate to say that it's the biggest issue because then it's about myself only, and mm -hmm. it really is not. But, I mean, it's a clear flaw in the system. Um, having said that, my specific issue has been there for years, so I don't really know whether it's because of side A or side B, so it really 
wouldn't matter. Um, there are other issues that could have probably implemented my vote today, but, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you and I, we both work in an ICU. Yeah. And I don't think that most people can imagine. I know I didn't, when I became a nurse, even through nursing school, I had no idea what it was going to be like working in an ICU. Yeah. And even today, I'm still like, surprised by some of the things that we see and we have to do yeah so I just I what would you say are some of the most interesting or challenging aspects of working in an ICU um, and this can be pre-COVID or yeah with COVID. well um, probably one of so two things probably how fast and fragile the human life is and how quickly you can lose it or make it better. It's just very, very striking. And I think that's why we all like working in an ICU environment because we realize that concept and we realize that even the smallest actions we can have can alter the course of a patient's life within hours, minutes, really. So I think seeing how some of the decisions you can make are so incredibly critical to you can make a life or break i hate to say it but you can really you know like really save someone's life with a certain decision and really go the other way with a different mm -hmm. decision um and i think the second most striking or harder part for me is um end of life care and dealing with families who are experiencing end of life and explaining what that means to them, explaining a lot of the things that we're not sure about or telling someone you're not sure. It's just really... You're not sure how it's going to work out. You're not sure how it's going to work out. You're not sure if their loved one is going to live or not. You're not sure what they're going to look like. And you know, expect them to make a decision off of that. Just mm. You feel just very, you know, like you're lacking, like you should know this stuff. Yeah. But... So you're talking about how... Uh once a person is, is so sick yeah. that, you know, a lot of times families ask, well, are they going to be able to walk again, talk again, right. eat food again, right. work, and you have to give your best. Right, judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And then make, you know, possibly, so, I mean, do you want to explain the concept of comfort care? Since yeah. Yeah. So, um... A lot of the time, unfortunately, because we both work in an ICU, we see a lot of devastating cases where despite the patient being young and otherwise physically capable, if they're, you know, if they have a large injury to their brain, then it must, it then could be disabling. And it could be disabling to the point where they wouldn't be able to really do any of their private, any of their prior daily activities or even get out of bed. They would end up being probably in a nursing home for the rest of their lives, um, or et cetera. And you have to figure out, because it's a very limited lifestyle afterwards, you have to figure out if this is something they want. Um, and not a lot of people bring that up. But, you know, we empathize with the patient a lot of the time. Maybe you think you, didn't, you wouldn't want to be in that position, or you wouldn't want to end up in a nursing home. But the hard part is going to the family and talking to them about would that patient want that or not. Um, and if not, then the best thing you can do is just 
focus on their comfort for the you know next few hours or days um, and instead of doing invasive procedures that may or may not help just knowing that you know um, that they were passing help them pa pass with a lot of comfort and dignity and make sure they don't suffer and so the decision that Justin's talking about is um, comfort care, meaning um, you help the patient with pain medications and anxiety medications until they pass. Um, and so the hard part is deciding whether you would like to continue all the invasive measures versus transitioning someone to comfort care, and that's a decision we make with the family. Um, but there, there are a lot of ifs when it comes to making that decision and um, families tend to ask what would happen if X, Y, and Z and we have to make our best educated um, guess knowing that it may not be true but this is the best answer you have right now. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, those are tough decisions. Yeah. Um, so, we deal with a lot of death and I mean, it, I've probably dealt with more death while working in the ICU for the last two years than I did for the previous you know, 28 years of my life. Yeah. Uh, and it can be stressful. And uh, I wanted to know how do you deal with that stress of seeing death on you know potentially a daily basis? Yeah. Um, or even so not just seeing death. Sorry, not just seeing death, but having to make those tough choices. You know, those yeah. critical choices, or talking to a family about what a likely outcome for their family member is. Yeah. Um, I mean, what makes me, a lot of the time, obviously, I would be running my decision by multiple people. Um, by, I have my attending, by another attending from either service. You make sure that at least you're giving the best educated decision of a team of physicians. Um, the stress of it, I mean, I think I'm getting better every year, but there are still days where I like come, uh, where I come back home and just start crying because it's just a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just trying to get through your day, get through your routine, working out makes me feel better. Um, but otherwise, just, you know, try to convince yourself as much as possible that you're doing what's right for that patient. And that although it, it just, it sucks and it feels horrible, then in the long run, you have done right by this patient. And that's really what the best we can do. Yeah. It can be tough. It's not, it's it, not the greatest. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, again, back to the ICU, uh, mm -hmm. about culture in the medical field and culture in the ICU. Yeah. Uh, especially, I remember when I was still being trained in the ICU, mm -hmm. uh, the, someone came by, one of the uh, supervisors came by and, and told me, hey, you may hear some of the nurses or doctors making jokes, but that's because we have to find a way to deal with these situations and you know process these situations. And I wanted to, not just with death, but even just with working, like, talk about culture and, like, yeah. the ICU culture. Yeah. Um, I think the ICU culture is probably one of the best cultures in the hospital because people are so 
close to each other. Like we experience these like profound experiences um, day in and day out that everybody's so close to each other, which is what I really like the most about it. Um, you end up experiencing these life and death situations with other people and getting closer to them, getting to know them. Um, and of course, you know, like humor helps so much. Like I know that obviously you have to be respectful and make sure the ICU after all has a lot of families. So make sure, you know, you're being respectful of that. But if we don't, you know, if we don't joke around with each other, it's just the days are going to be so hard to pass by. We get closer to each other by humor and mm -hmm. we make things easier on each other. And I think without it, it's, it would have been incredible. I don't, I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have the same people around me that like, you know, I can talk to about things and we can joke around and get through the day. Um, so I, I mean, that's why the ICU is like the best place to be. I don't think there is anywhere else in the hospital where you're that close with people around, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's why, that's why I like it. <laughs> There's a lot of strong personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're one of them, let's <laughs> be honest. Uh, we were talking about that before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's an appropriate thing in such a, you know, you, you know, when you have to make critical decisions, you have to be, I don't know what's the word. Yeah. Uh, Detail-oriented I mean, and yeah. and aggressive. Yeah. Does that ever boil over? Does that ever, you know, because yeah. we, we work in teams, like you say. Right. And sometimes there's a lot of doctors yeah. uh, varying levels of education and training and yeah. then the nurses as well. Does that yeah. ever boil over? Yeah, always. It always does. Um, I mean... Like you said, there are a lot of strong personalities, and I think I think probably the culture and the place selects for it. Like you mentioned, like it's it's a really hard environment, and it's an environment where you have to make quick decisions and you have to be decisive. Um, and you'll meet a lot of people who will question your decision for better or for worse, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the time there is not a, a clear right answer, and so you have to consider all the options, and you're going to be presented with A, B, and C. And so um, the culture selects for a personality that, that's, you know, that's a certain way. Now the challenge is, and I've had that challenge a lot, is making sure um, that you're being decisive for the right reason and making it about the patient. Oh yeah, I'm okay. Sorry, I'm just looking at a list yeah. I have written here. Oh, you're fine. So as long as you make it about the patient, it I think at the end of the day is going to be fine. As long as you refocus and make sure that it's not personal. Like, mm -hmm. you know, tempers are going to boil over all the time. But as long as you refocus and make sure that you're working towards the same goal, and this is not about X, Y, and Z, this is not about you and I, it's not about you being the resident and I'm being the fellow or you're the attending or you're the nurse or mm -hmm. you're all working towards the same goal, then it's fine. And to me, a lot of the time, it, honestly, all the time, it's never, per I, I even forget who I'm talking to. Yeah. To me, it's not personal. Um, 
But yeah, it's certainly, I mean, there are days <laughs> where this boils <laughs> over, um, I'm, as I'm sure you've witnessed. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you give for someone who wants to become a doctor? Because everybody kind of has this dream, like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor one day. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Don't do it. Do it from the <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, you know, before I decided to become a nurse, like, oh, you know, maybe I'll be a doctor. But then I'm like, no, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do it anymore. I don't think it's for me. Um, like a high school or someone who's in high school right now and they're considering yeah. pre-med. Yeah. Make sure that you really want this because it, it I mean it'll test you a lot throughout the years and there will be a lot of opportunities to do something else or to switch something else and it's going to take a lot of time and effort and money um, but as long as you have a goal in mind um, then I would say do it like the, the I mean we need a lot of smart passionate and compassionate people um, and as you know, as long as someone has um, the ability and the focus to do it, then you should go for it. Don't let other things discourage you. Don't let money or time, don't compare yourself to someone else. Just as long as you have your eye on a goal and you know you want to do it, then just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Yes. So let's shift gears. I wanted to talk about, you know, everybody, Obviously, one of really the number one issue in the U.S. right now, uh, aside from, well, maybe, or at least one of the top five is COVID. Yeah. So, you've had experience with COVID patients. Yeah. In ICUs. Mm -hmm. What is that like? What, what's your experience been? Um, it, I think um, the most striking thing probably about the patients who ended up in the ICU is how sick they were. Um, and once you're in the ICU and you're intubated, your chances of mortality are very, very high. I think what strikes me the most is that no matter what we did, nothing, the majority of the things, I don't want to say nothing, but the majority of the things that we did just didn't help. Um, and a lot of these patients, a large percentage of them who ended up being intubated in the ICU ended up passing. Um, I think it was a really dark time, not just because of the fact that these patients were really sick, but because the entire world was locked down. We were just like in this special environment where all our patients were COVID. We had like 12 to 15 beds that were just COVID patients, and that's all you talked about day in and day out. So. Not only is your like life at work was altered, your life at home was altered too. So it was just, I think it was a very depressing time for everyone. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was a, it was really rough. Definitely, it was a rough couple of months. What when was that? What month? Um, so we, I think it was April, end of April, beginning of May. Yeah. Okay. That's when our unit switched over to buy mode. So here we are in November. Mm -hmm. the, the testing positivity rate is, is climbing up. Mm -hmm. the, I think there's 540 people in Maryland who are hospitalized with COVID. 
where do you see it going? Like if you, you know, you're yeah. obviously, it's not your field, but yeah. if you were to predict what's going to happen as we get, you know, into winter. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I think that it's, it's climbing up at an alarming rate and we're going to have a similar, we're going to be in the same position where we were last year if we don't have a vaccine soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there is by now a lot of like silent carriers and um, with the winter months coming up, we're going to start seeing a lot of like symptomatic cases and it's just going to boil over the same way it did. I mean, nothing changed, right, between then and now. We'd like to think something's changed, but I don't really think they did. Um, and so as long as we don't have a vaccine, we're going to be right back where we started. Yeah. So if, <coughs> excuse me, if you don't mind getting political. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> and if you don't want, <laughs> if you don't want to, that's fine. Oh no, um, I love getting political. Obviously, but remember who your husband is. No. Who's her husband? That's, <laughs> since we have an audience today, who is her husband? Um, my husband is Ben Miller. Um, he is a producer for um, the Sean Hannity Show no. on Fox News. Oh, there. Um, All right. So obviously he has oh, his Hannity. own his own set of He's political beliefs. He's a raging beliefs. liberal, a bleeding heart liberal. Um, is that what I'm <laughs> um, Yeah. No, he's not. He's not. We stand on um, different pages when it comes to politics. Not always. Mostly. Not 50-50. <laughs> Mace is more conservative than she was. That's before. not true. Well, I think that's okay. <laughs> I, my wife and I are the same. Uh, we don't talk about it much. Yeah. I think that's the way to go. Which way? Yeah. Which way is it with you and your wife? Which way is it with my wife and I? Uh, or me and my wife. Funny story, Maze corrected my English <laughs> once with that She's exact statement. She's not always statement. right about that. Oh, is she not always right? No, I right. was right in that situation. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> so which one is which one's a Republican and which one's not? Or is it? I am way? neither. I am an unaffiliated person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like party politics, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like fiscally conservative policies yeah. uh, but socially I'm liberal I don't as you know so I guess some people would say I'm a libertarian I'm the same way I don't want I want everyone to be able to live their lives and be happy yeah. and as long as you're not hurting anyone it has no effect on me yeah and I don't like being taxed but I do see the importance of taxes and obviously I work in healthcare and I see patients every day who I mean, if they couldn't get care, like one, they, you know they can't afford the care, or at least you assume they can't yeah. because the ICU is very expensive. And uh, so it's good that these families have <laughs> some uh, sort of support. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a safety net. Yeah. So I do see that, and I'm kind of torn with that. Yeah. Because I, I don't know how I feel about universal health care, uh, but I think there should be a safety net for people. It would be a disaster. Yeah. It would be a disaster. <laughs> You, you may agree on that point. No, I don't agree. You think the single payer system is good for? Yeah. Because it's funny because even in our even I'm sorry even you're gonna have to come over here. Oh my god. Even in our system, so if you look at Mace's family, her older brother is a doctor. Okay. <laughs> Mace is a doctor. You're breaking all the rules. And then her, One, yo- her two. younger her younger brother is working in finance. They're all very, very smart people, mm-hmm. really well qualified people. Her younger brother could be a doctor. 
but it's really hard to be a doctor and it's much easier to go into finance and so that's one of the reasons why you see uh, a, supply, a, a supply issue with doctors in the United States is that they are, are, it's really hard to become a doctor and the reward is not as great as if, say, you go into finance or something like that. Um, so that's already causing a supply shortage of doctors. If you turn it to a single-payer system where there um, is sort of no competing payout, everything's run by the government, the government sets the prices, doctors will be paid very little. Uh, you see this in Quebec, you see it in England, doctors are paid similar rates as teachers. And so doctors at that point, you know, young people coming through college look to themselves and say, okay, I'm really smart, I could be a doctor, I could spend all of this time in college, go into massive amounts of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, and then under a single payer system you'd never pay it off, you'd barely make any money at all. And so they just wouldn't they're going to make an economical choice to do something else. Mm. Um, it's not that they're going to go to another country. There really isn't another country that pays as much, maybe some in the Middle East, but most of them are just going to choose to go into another profession. And so you will have an extreme doctor shortage, and uh, it will be a problem. This is one of the reasons why people in other countries who are very, very wealthy come to the United States for their care, because we have the best doctors, because they come here because you can make the most money here. Mm. That's why Mason, most of her colleagues who want to be in the United States, they come here for training. I did not come stay. here for money. Well, you're very Neither noble, but most people are not money. as noble. That's great. Congratulations. But most people are not that noble. Most people look at their futures, and money is a huge driver for, for why people do what they do. Okay. I will now answer my question. I would say that's fair. That's kind of what I look at. I wonder if... I mean, I'm certainly, I do my job for money. Uh, I mean, you have to love nursing to yeah. do it because I'm not getting paid that much. But, yeah, 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 yeah. And I do some really wild things that I never saw myself doing <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, you know, so you have to want to help people, but I do, th you, know, uh, I, you know, I do need to get paid. And yeah, I do you want should to, be compensated for it, right. Yeah, you know, build my life and make money. So I kind of see that, I see that outside. So that's why I'm not sure about the single pay, uh, the single payer system. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, actually, yeah, if you want, you, you know, we can go right to that. What do you yeah. think about universal health care? I mean, I think I, I get all of these financial points, but I think it's a human right to have health care. There is no way about it. Um, can I ask you a question about that? Because yeah. I, I think about that idea that it's a human right. Yeah. So our Constitution guarantees rights for U.S. citizens. Right. And we believe that those are human rights. God-given rights is what it says, whether you believe in God or not, whatever. But right. So those are the rights that should be guaranteed to U.S. citizens. Yeah. But if we say healthcare is a human right, yeah. Does, does who is who then do we have to guarantee that for? Because that's kind of like who do we do we guarantee that for U.S. citizens? Right. Proper U.S. citizens or you everybody? Know, right. Seven billion people. Right, right, right. Which obviously you know that's the extreme, but that's just an interesting point that I thought about recently. I mean. I, I just think it should be a right for everybody. And I get that if you are, you know, if you're paying, if you're an American citizen who's paying taxes, you expect that it's going to cover American citizens who are paying taxes. But the 
truth of the matter is not everybody can pay taxes and not everybody's an American citizen, but we're all human beings. And that sure, maybe your money is going to someone who's not paying taxes or who doesn't have a job or who hasn't had a job in many, many years. That doesn't mean they don't have the right to live. And that doesn't mean that they don't have the right for healthcare. Um, and I think like kindness should be a big part of it. Like I get the whole financial aspect of it, but I think I think humanity as a whole needs to con not ignore the part where we all have to be kind to each other and giving towards each other. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I think everybody should get health care. I'm not going to tell you a plan on how to financially constitute that because I'm not the person role? for it. Because I'm not the person for it, but I think that's... Role? I think that's one of the biggest things we should aim for, healthcare and education. Don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really nice. And I agree, I, you know, I have always, uh, you know, I grew up with health insurance. I always had access to healthcare and I never had to take it for granted. Or maybe I did take it for granted, you yeah. know? So I can't imagine what it's like to not have access to that. And again, we see patients every day who experience this uh, tragic, you know, th these traumas that yeah. like out of nowhere too. And like, yeah. how can you plan for, you can't plan for that. Right, right. And that could happen to me, you know. And, could and it happen to anybody? I mean, like if everybody had healthcare, we, we wouldn't see as much mental illness maybe on the street. We wouldn't see that much homelessness issue. We wouldn't see that much poverty issue even maybe. I mean, I, we could have treated so many things at the root, but mm -hmm. it's, but it, it hasn't been dealt with because these patients come into the world without access to healthcare, so it evolves into even a bigger issue, into a bigger issue, et cetera. And I think at the end of the day, if the, all, if the country buys into it, it may save us money rather than the other way around. That's, that's my opinion. Okay. <laughs> Like I said, I'm not going to give you a financial plan because I, I understand when people come and explain the financial burden of what a universal health care would be. I understand that. I do think that there is a way, but we need to all, we need to have the smartest people thinking about that way. And I don't think we do right now. Does that work? No, I think that's a spam. <laughs> oh. I have, a, I have an idea. And it's, it's very positive. Is it a short idea? Yeah, you know, most people, you know, look at this and they go, oh, you know, the government has to do something. But that is not necessarily the case. For example, I worked for, uh, before I worked at Fox, I worked for an outsourced chief investment office. And one of our clients, uh, the whole purpose, they were an institution, so they were an institutional investor. And their whole purpose of their charitable fund was to pay for people's health care costs. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, it was a huge fund, almost a billion dollars. And every year they'd spend 5% of that, at least, paying for people's health care bills. There are hospitals set up for care for children, uh, Shriners and what is the other one? Oh, you're talking about you know, St. Jude's. St. Jude's. So there is a role for private sector in terms of charity to provide for people's health care. And I think that's very, very important. And I think there needs to be more emphasis on that. And even coordination through the government, if you think it could help. But I think that the problem with universal health care is not a cost, it's not a cost situation. Most people go, oh, like you were saying, burden on the taxpayers. Other countries have carried that burden, huge taxes, it 
It's not great, but they do it. The real issue with that is you lose doctors because the government controls. Again, the losing of the doctors. Controls the controls the cost, so they control what doctors make and they force the wages down. You lose doctors, um, and so you'll have a huge doctor shortage, and care will go down as a result. As opposed to a competitive system. As opposed to yeah, and our system now is not is not wonderful. Yeah, so many issues, um, and it's a really hard problem to solve. If it was easy, it would already be solved. Mm. But I think the private, uh, a private way doing it through charities and funds is a much better is a much better way to do it than saying okay. Everyone making fifty thousand dollars a year. Now you're going to get taxed at fifty no percent. Doctors, you're going to make half as much as you made, and we're just going to, you know, do what no England does. That. That's what it works. That's how it works out. No, it's not. <laughs> not fifty thousand dollars. Well, so this kind of uh, this this discussion kind of goes into uh, the next thing that I wanted to ask about. Uh, so you're concerned, you said you're concerned that if, you know, we don't have a working vaccine soon, do you think we will? Do you think they're going to come out with a working vaccine within the next four months? Is that likely? Not, not based on prior history. I have been shocked by how fast all of these companies are working and by how much incentive they were given. Um, now, working is a big word, right? Because it can work, but it can also give you some debilitating neurologic disease like the first vaccine did. Oh, no. And you can keep going. So as long as we make sure that we have a working vaccine that doesn't give you extreme complications, then we'll be okay. Do I think he's going to happen in the next four months? Probably not. We'll probably have to wait till next year to get a safe working vaccine. Okay. So you, you expect, I mean, following your logic, you expect that it's probably going to, the numbers are probably going to continue to go up for quite some yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we take a quick break? Yeah. So, yeah, um, on that, the government's role, what do you think, you know, everyone has different opinions on how big a role they feel the government should take yeah. in dealing with this. Yeah. Like, is this, is COVID such a public health issue that the state or even the federal government should mandate masks, for instance, or mandate a lockdown? Masks, yes, but um, a lockdown, we don't have any data supporting the fact that the lockdown helped anything. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it we have data about the economic impact it had. We have data about the emotional impact it had in people, about the rates of depression. We've had data about all the negative impacts that a lockdown had, but nothing about it helping. So do I think it should be recommended? No, I think anything should be a data-driven approach. And we, we just don't have data for a lockdown. Um, we can, have you, can you gather data about something that could have happened? You know, who's to say, you know, if a what, if what good a, right. it did or didn't do? Well, I mean, at the time, I'm sure someone was collecting at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and you can build models to expect kind of what COVID could have looked like versus what COVID ended up looking, look like, looking like eventually. And we just don't have any evidence supporting the fact that it helped yet. Um, now, masks, I think, are pretty, it's a pretty minimal approach 
to this entire thing, so I think they're not hurting anybody and they may help, so why not kind of thing. Um, I actually enjoy wearing a mask because then I don't have to smile at people when I'm not happy. <laughs> and so if I'm having a rough day at work, uh, you know, we can talk to people. Just like, yeah. Maybe raise my eyebrows a <laughs> Whatever. little bit. It's, really, it's going to be rough when we go back to no mask in however many years. Everyone's going to see my face. Everyone's going to be like, oh. That's how he always looks like. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, usually I try to smile all the time so that yeah. people don't think, oh, he's having a rough one. Or... <laughs> yeah, I... I, I didn't love masks initially, but now it's getting cold, and I kind of really like the fact that they warm you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, like, it's just a very, like, non-invasive thing to do. So if it has any positive impact, then why not? But something like a lockdown, I think, should be looked at really closely. Because mm. um, we see Europe, some European countries getting ready to... Lockdown again. Yeah, and then Thanksgiving's coming up, so I wonder if governors and you know people right. in charge are getting itchy. You know. to, right, right, right. I just think like everything in medicine, if we don't have data for it, and if we have data for its negative impacts, we should be looking at it more closely. Like mm -hmm. nobody should be making any guesses or guesstimations about this. We've had a full year at this point of data. So people need to really analyze it and take a look at it before mm -hmm. we implement anything. So, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe this is, and I can cut this out if we don't want to, you don't want to say it. I wanted to ask about Dr. Fauci. Oh. Dr. Fauci, because he's really, uh, he's kind of like the top doctor in the spotlight right now. Yeah. You know, he gets a lot of airtime. Uh, yeah. President Trump has a lot to say about him. Yeah. And specifically, you know, in the beginning, I was talking to another nurse about this earlier today. He was telling us, you know, in the beginning, he said, don't go out and buy masks. Right. And to me, you know, if a patient has the flu, we wear a mask. So yeah. to me, I thought that was maybe not great advice. And I understand that, you know, I, I feel like you probably said that because there's going to be a mask shortage. Right. But I kind of saw that as dishonest. Yeah. Well, then he says, oh, everybody should be wearing a mask. Right. So, what would you do? I mean, so honestly, I think what happened is that no one knew what we were dealing with in the beginning, and he made a best, best guess, which mm -hmm. we do all the time in medicine, and he was wrong about some of the decisions he makes. And... You know, to say that doctors are not wrong about things is crazy, and that's what people need to understand. Like, I think the fact that he's being drawn in such a negative light now is insane because he dedicated his entire life to the science. He is an honorable scientist. He, you know, went through extensive training like we all do. And at the end of the day, everyone needs to understand, even when it comes down to it, is that when we make the best, our best guess about something, sometimes we are wrong. Um, and I think he was wrong about some of these decisions and people won't let him live it down. It's just sad that he had to, that he had that happen in front of the entire country. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, he's had a pretty rough go Yeah, yeah I feel months. really, really bad for him because <clears throat> I feel like we could have all been in that position, Yeah, you know? And I just feel like, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's funny to watch him sit up there and be questioned by, 
you know, uh, elected officials, and he's just like, you know, he laughs, which I appreciate. I appreciate yeah. that he laughs because he's like, these are ridiculous questions. These yeah. are, you know, like, yeah, we, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of a ridiculous situation. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I, that's the thing. I, I feel for him. I, because like I mentioned before, when we were talking about end of life and stuff like that, you, you make your best guess when it comes to something, and like. You let people know that you could be wrong, but this is your best educated guess. Mm -hmm. And I think he made his best educated guess. And at the time, no one can pretend to know what our educated guesses were. Obviously, we were wrong about a lot of things as a country, politicians, etc. Um, but for some reason, he's the one being con the spotlight about being wrong about this mask thing for a month. Yeah. And I think that's not fair. <laughs> Things not fair. No. So, what does the future hold for you? What's what's next? You you finished up this fellowship. You're currently doing neurocritical care. Um, that um, ends this coming summer, correct? Correct. Um, I'm doing neurointerventional radiology afterwards for a couple of years. And what is interventional radiology? Um, so it's mostly for minimally invasive surgeries for aneurysms, strokes, and minimally invasive back surgeries. Um, so I'll be the person to do that. So you'll be a surgeon? Is that, um, is that the, being a surgeon? In a, um, I mean, I'm, I would be an interventionalist, but in a general since we'd be doing minimally invasive surgery in a way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is that like coiling arteries? Yeah, okay. exactly. So coiling arteries, taking out clots for strokes, um, putting some cement-like material in the back, etc. Cement in the back. That's, yeah. Uh, never heard that one. <laughs> Do weird stuff. What's that? That's what Kim K got. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right? Wow. So that's just about everything I wanted to cover, I think. Um, final thoughts? How do you want to leave it? Um, Advice for tomorrow? How to survive the oh post-election COVID wasteland? I have things to say about masks. I don't... Let me... Let me catch you after this. <laughs> um, I don't really know. I'll, I'll probably try to work on something to just distract myself. Um, I think the, f the final thing I did want to mention is that I talked a lot about how, you know, skeptical, skeptical, skeptical I am of some of the political decisions and the culture, etc. But um, I am, I do feel blessed to be here, very thankful to be here, knowing that a lot of people in my position who are born in the same country do not have the same opportunities I have. I'm very aware of the opportunities I got and the people around me who helped me get to where I am. So I'm very thankful for the country, despite what's going on with politics, despite what's going on with the culture. I'm, incredibly grateful for it.
Mm. So. Yeah. Actually, uh, sorry, I just thought of something I wanted to ask. Do you ever see any of that culture in the workplace? Do you ever? Um, if you don't answer, that's fine. I can. What do you mean? Uh, well, just. Like, uh, just getting. Being a, a woman of color. Yeah. Um, thankfully, in medicine, very, very minimally here and there. Mm. Um, I've certainly walked into rooms where it's a bunch of tall dudes, tall white dudes, or just tall dudes in general. And I was painfully aware of it, but I don't think... I was ever held back because of it, and I didn't think about it honestly too long to even affect me. I know that it's not like that for everybody else, but I think medicine is one of those cultures where it's, like I said, it's you can get to where you want to as long as you work hard for it, mm -hmm. which, is, which, which is one of the things I like about it. I think uh, medicine is somewhat of a female, I think I've heard that it's a female dominated industry. I mean, I'm certainly in yeah. nursing. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a minority in that as a white man. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting with working with a lot of women. Yeah. But I just wondered how it felt from your perspective. It's what, I didn't feel it as much until I started applying for this interventional fellowship because it is more of a surgical interventional field. And that's where I felt like I was surrounded by a lot of, um, male dominated, um, departments mm -hmm. but um, I think as long as you know even those departments are opening up their doors for anybody really as long as they qualify for it based on the qualifications you have you say they're male dominated would you say it's just because they're predominantly male or that the leadership is male both okay yeah have you worked in an area that has, thinking about how to phrase this question, uh, excellent female or person of color representation at the leadership level? Or, or do you have, do you know a leader, uh, either a woman or a person of color yeah. at that leadership level? And then how does that affect you? I, so in residency, um, I've had this like one particular attending that I, I still talk to um, and she is she is incredibly strong and smart and decisive and the minute I met her in the beginning of residency I was like I want to be like that and mm -hmm. like she I used her as a mentor throughout residency I talked to her about all kinds of things life and work and everything in between and I think um, I think having that connection is incredibly important for anybody in the field. I mean, I'm, like you said, I'm a pretty, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty strong person, but having, having that backup just made a world of difference. Um, having someone you can relate to. Is it beneficial to see someone uh, who you can relate to in a leadership role? Yeah. Almost like, hey, that door could be, you know, I can open that door too. I can moving in that position. Absolutely. It makes it a lot less um, terrifying or un unattainable. Um, so I, I certainly appreciate it. Yeah. And all the places that I've 
trained in or applied to work in. I've, I've seen a couple of people that I was, that I related to and I was really impressed by and wanted to be like, so I know that it at least matters to me a lot, yeah. So what's five years down the road for you? What's the end game? What's five years, what's the end game? I don't game? know what the end game, well. Free clinic. Uh, <laughs> Let's not stretch it. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But no, I mean, you obviously have some philanthropic. You know. Yeah. Um, so I would love if at some point I have enough money um, to start a hospital in Iraq. I would love to do that. Um, that will probably be more of a 10, 15 year mm -hmm. project situation rather than a five year situation. But if I can do that, then I've, I've accomplished what I wanted. Wow. But yeah. That's quite a... All right. Yeah. Well, we'll check back in uh, maybe in a couple years down the road and see how you're working. You know, uh, <clears throat> I have a friend who holds me accountable. He says, how's that podcast going? How's this going? How's this oh, going? And I nice. think that's very important. So we will put it on the books maybe four years down the road and we'll see how okay. you are in working I'm towards starting. how you are in working towards that hospital. In I Iraq. hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you too, Ben. For <laughs> thank you for letting me interview. Yeah, I apologize again. All right. <laughs> Alrighty, everyone. That's the show. Thank you for listening. I want to give a big thanks to Dr. Aquaz for being candid and taking the time to be on the show. Also, thanks to her husband for his participation as well. Please stay tuned for the next episode.